This is Science Friday. I'm John Dankosky, in for Ira Flato. Later this hour, how farmers in Bangladesh are capturing monsoon rains for the next dry season. It's an invisible water machine. Plus, a conversation with a pioneer in science radio, Jim Metzner, will talk about the lessons he's learned from carefully listening to the pulse of our planet. But first, this week, the biotech firms Biogen and Esai released preliminary data from the clinical trials for their new Alzheimer's drug. They say the drug is effective in reducing cognitive decline by 27% for patients in the trial, and it appears likely the medicine will get the FDA's approval by the end of the year. All this comes after the recent controversy surrounding Biogen's previous Alzheimer's drug, Aduhelm, which Medicare and other private insurers will not cover. Joining me now to talk more about this and other top science stories of the week is my guest, Roxanne Kamsey, is a science journalist based in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Roxanne, welcome back to Science Friday. Hi, John. It's great to be here. So to start off, tell us more about this new intravenous Alzheimer's medicine, Lacanamab. How effective is it? Well, as you say, it only seems to slow the effect of cognitive decline by about a quarter. And really, it's on the scale from zero to 18. People were being tested on this cognitive test called the clinical dementia rating. And they found that people over 18 months who were on the drug did 0.45 points better. So not quite a stunning difference, I would say, than those who didn't receive the drug. So I mean, it kind of comes down to how you calculate it. I think the interesting thing here is that we've gone almost 20 years without new drugs for Alzheimer's. And now in the last two years, this is the second one. As you mentioned, the first one has kind of not been a home run for the drug companies and for patients. So it's a little bit of wait and see with this one, too, I think. Yeah, and I think a lot of the reaction to it is because we haven't had a new drug in 20 years and there's just a lot of excitement about anything that seems to to move the needle. This is part of a study looking at the underlying science of what causes Alzheimer's. So so what does all this tell us about how amyloid plaques work? Yes. And as you mentioned, anything that moves the needle is important because Alzheimer's affects so many people in the US and the world. And for the last 15 years or so, the predominant theory has been that these plaques form in the brain, amyloid toxins, and that clearing those toxins somehow will reduce the cognitive decline. That being said, just in the last year, there was an investigation suggesting that maybe some of the data that prompted this whole interest in amyloid might have been from manipulated data in a study. So there's a little bit of a question mark hanging over that as well. And there's some skepticism about this drug for all the reasons we just laid out. What are some of the other concerns that that we're hearing from people this week? Well, nothing is without uh, cost, I guess, sometimes with drugs, not just the the price tag. And for the the one that you mentioned that Medicare doesn't cover, it's $56,000 a year. But in terms of the side effects, there can be some brain swelling. It could be temporary, but anytime your brain's swelling or, or acting unusual, it's not necessarily a great thing. So I think doctors and patients, if this drug gets approved, will have to weigh a lot of different factors. We'll continue to follow that story in the weeks and months ahead. Now, this next story you brought us is going in a different direction, deep inside the Earth. And I don't know, dare I say, it might even be a little bit of a sparkly story. Scientists have found a diamond that suggests a whole lot of water in the Earth's mantle. So how can a diamond tell us that, Roxanne? 
Yes, I love talking about diamonds. Let's talk about diamonds all the time. So, <laughs> so this was a this was a, a, a gem quality diamond, but it had a flaw in it. It had a beautiful flaw, if you might say, that actually gives us a clue about what's going on deep inside the Earth. So we don't really have a great way to look at the Earth's mantle because it's so far down deep below us. And yet there's this question of, What's there? So this impurity, this imperfection in this diamond that is kind of like a cloudy blue white haze, it tells us that there are potentially some water in the mantle and how the water got there. We don't know. We have some questions. But I love the fact that this tiny diamond is giving us a picture into what might be going on beneath the surface of the earth. So, so a diamond with an impurity like this might actually be a, a more valuable diamond for science. Yes. And unfortunately, they've found one of these kinds of gems before, about a decade ago. And it was also miraculously potentially providing clues to whether there's water in the mantle of the earth. But they destroyed it in the process of analyzing it. So hopefully this time we'll, we'll learn, be able to learn more. <laughs> And they can take better care of the diamond. Yes, destroyed diamonds are, are, are never are never good. Oh, my goodness. Well, speaking of traveling back in time and finding unusual things about the Earth, so scientists have analyzed an 80-million-year-old bird skull, and it turns out, Roxanne, that ancient birds might have been just as smart as current ones. How do they figure this out? Yes, and let's also say that current birds are actually not that bird-brained. I yes. did not know this, but living birds today have brains that are more complex than any other animals besides mammals. So actually, let's give some birds some respect for their brains. The, the, what had happened was researchers found this skull uh, that was about 80 million years old, and it has kind of a structure that they're able to use a CT scan to, to look and analyze in slices, and they can recreate a virtual reconstruction of what this bird's brain was. And it gives them clues to the structure and, and how it might have been actually able to function a little bit better than other brains out there 80 million years ago. So, so what does this tell us though about the bird family tree, the, the birds that maybe descended from this 80 million year old, you know, relatively smart bird? Yes. So the structure of the brain here is it's kind of flexed. It flexes downwards and it looks more like modern hummingbirds rather than the brain of some of the ancient dinosaurs that might have been related to it. So it kind of tells us that maybe around this time there was a divergence and birds had this kind of new formatting structure that gave them maybe even a better ability to fly. We don't know, but there's a lot of conjecture, a lot of speculation that there was a branching potentially off of some of the older types of birds, dinosaurs and things like that. It took flight, if you will, this new kind of brain. Hmm. Now, there's another study that you brought us here that I think it, it helps to answer one of the questions I've always had about just being human, that, that feeling of being sick. Like what gives us that feeling like, oh, I'm not well today. And we're starting to learn a little bit more about that kind of icky feeling. Tell us more about this study. Yeah. So we're going from brains 80 million years ago in birds to our brains today. And what scientists found is that they looked at some of the neurons in the, in the brainstem of mice, which then they hope to 
say it's like ours because we're not that different from mice as much as we want to believe. And these these neurons seem to regulate some of those very common symptoms across all different kinds of illnesses that we get. So I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm sick, I lose my appetite. I get lethargic. I just want to snooze. You know, sometimes I wish my doctor would just prescribe watching movies or something like that because that's all <laughs> I want to do. But uh, so it, it seems that the the mice had the same effect. So, so they did a lot of tricky sophisticated work to be able to turn on these neurons even when the mice weren't sick from a from an actual pathogen and they found the same kind of lethargy and loss of appetite in the animals really cluing us into that this might be an area for us to pay more attention to in terms of what makes us feel the way we do when we're sick Whenever we see studies that are done in mice, there is always a little bit of a, a red flag there. Like uh, mice aren't exactly like humans. Is this the sort of study, Roxanne, that you think, I don't know, might be something worth worth looking more into? I think so. I do want to say that one of the interesting caveats is all the mice in the study were male. So would be nice if they actually threw some female mice in there too, just for kicks. But I, I do think that this isn't something where the mice have to perform some sophisticated mental task. It's really a basic function of behavior from being sick. So I would not be surprised. I'm not a scientist, obviously, but I wouldn't be surprised if we perhaps find some clues in our own brainstem about why we feel the way we do when we're sick. Well, I, I want to close with, I think, a really hopeful and interesting story and something I didn't know was possible. Researchers are looking into how to make false teeth into hearing aids. So how exactly does this work? Yes, this might be a preview into how I will listen to Science Friday 40 years from now. <laughs> if I lose my front teeth, especially. Your front teeth, especially. Okay, interesting. Tell, tell us more. <laughs> yes, yes. And not just because they're huge. So, so scientists essentially were looking for different ways to enhance hearing because a lot of us are, are either losing our hearing or have, have had some hearing impairment and... What we typically know about is these hearing aids that go in our ears. But what if the hearing aids went in our mouths is the kind of idea behind all this. So they want to engineer a, a tooth implant that can function like a hearing aid. So picking up sound in our teeth, because essentially even our ears are kind of picking up sound ultimately through bones and things like that. So we're trying to get good vibrations here. They wanted to test whether implants that were already in people, they, they had 38 participants in the study. They found that the implants actually conducted sound better than regular natural teeth and that the implants in the front of the mouth were particularly suited to picking up sound better than ones like deep in the, in the back of the mouth, like molars and things like that. So now they might want to engineer something that specifically functions to act as a hearing aid and a tooth implant. It's a two-in-one. A, a two-in-one, but would it require you to, I don't know, pull out one of your front teeth in order to make this work? They don't say in the paper whether they would ask people to do that, but I know plenty of people that have implants. Um, somebody in my family is this week undergoing a, an implant uh, procedure. So let's just say they're not suggesting you you ask your friend to punch you in the face so that you can get a hearing aid. <laughs> but there might be an opportunity for people that are looking to upgrade their implants to really upgrade their implants. 
That's so interesting. Well, we'll have to keep watching that technology as it develops. I want to thank my guest, Roxanne Kamsey. She's a science journalist based in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Always good to talk to you, Roxanne. Thank you, John. I appreciate it very much.